recorded live from the WAYOFM.org studios in the fabulous Better Building here in Rochester, New York. Welcome to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. And, uh, of course, I am Penny Sterling, B-F-A-M-A-C-A-C-E-E-I-E-I-O. And should the necessity arise to use gender pronouns in regards to me, of course, you should endeavor to refer to me using the feminine, i.e., she, her, and, of course, hers. Well, in that case, I'm a B-A-M-B-A, and maybe in search of an MRS, but I don't really understand what the heck are you doing there? Uh, well, of course, uh, I'm doing multiple things on many levels, from the overarching concept of existing on the material plane, down to the cellular level of processing proteins and expelling waste, and even on the molecular scale... Stop it! Why are you in a lab coat and safety classes? Why Why do you sound like a sick puppet with a hand up his tail side? And where the hell did you get the test tubes and the beakers and whatever that thing is? Oh, that that's a thermal mixer. It's used for... Well, what, 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 whatever. Why is it here? Because we have a scientist on today, and I wanted to make her feel at home. Uh, Penny, she's a social scientist. Well, just because she goes to parties, there's no need to denigrate her. No, Penny. Dr. Gugliaz is an assistant professor at Fordham University's Department of Psychology. She researches the intersection of social and cognitive development, focusing on children's reasoning and the social world. She conducted the world's largest study of trans youth and children to see how they socialize compared with their cisgender counterparts. And she's here today to talk about her findings. Oh, wow, that, that sounds fascinating. Okay, while you take us to the break, I'll get rid of all this stuff. The, the Bunsen burners, the beakers, and this Tesla coil. No, leave that. I like the ambiance. Cool. We'll be right back after the traditional music swell and fade. Uh... Let's talk about change, Amy. Okay, let me see. It looks like I've got three quarters, a nickel, a Canadian loony, and a few British tenors from when I was in London, because I'm an international comedian. No, not that change. Change is in transformation. The topic of Transformation Thursday. Oh, yeah, that. Well, we're doing this podcast to highlight how much things change and how quickly they do it in society today. Everything changes, and change isn't good or bad. It just is. The more we realize that change is just the natural progression of things, the better off we'll be. Now, let's talk about change. Didn't we just do that? No, no, not the last one. The first one. The coins. Money. About how people can give us some of theirs so that we can continue talking about ours. Are you just trying to get people to go to our Patreon page to support this podcast so that we can continue our exploration of what it means to live in a rapidly changing world? Because although this is a labor of love, we do have expenses, and by going to TransformationThursday.com, they can help ensure that we can continue to be bringing this fun and insightful commentary on the world today, plus get exclusive patrons-only content. Um, if I say yes, can we get on to our next segment? Oh, God, I hope so. Okay, then. TransformationThursday.com. Also, can you break a 20 for me? Sure. I can get that to you in euros. Okay, now you're just showing off. 
Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm still Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are still she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are also she, her. This week's guest is Dr. Celine Gugelaz. I hope I pronounced that right. She holds a PhD in developmental psychology from the University of Michigan. Her research interests include children's gender development, social categorization, and social cognition. She is broadly interested in understanding how children think about their social world. She's an assistant professor of psychology at Fordham University. And while she was at the University of Washington, she was co-contributor of gender development among transgender and cisgender children, the groundbreaking study about how transgender children see themselves and their place in the world. So then thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you're here. So from my perspective, even though this is the largest study of its kind, and we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the study and its significance, from my perspective yeah. as a transgender woman who grew up closeted and frustrated beyond belief, <laughs> my second reaction when I first read about the study and its conclusion was, yeah, no kidding. By the way, my first <laughs> reaction was, thank God someone has done this study. Have you? Thank you. You're, you're very welcome, and thank you. I sincerely thank you. Have you heard similar reactions from other adult trans people about your work? Well, I've read I've read comments on on Twitter uh, of the similar that's, sentiment, that's, saying, "Yeah, but with the yeah, that's could be kind of <laughs> dangerous too." <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I, I definitely. Um, the reason I came across these comments is often people have, you know, either retweeted something that I tweeted about uh, our news article, our, our article, or um, news uh, coverage that came out about the article, and I, I get alerts for all of those because I get tagged and. Um, there have been quite a few of oh, no kidding <laughs> uh, yeah. type sentiments out there that I've noticed for sure. Yeah. yeah. So could you give us a brief overview of the study and its conclusions? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, of course, I'm asking um, Professor for brief and that almost never happens. So I'll be here taking notes. <laughs> okay. So um, like you mentioned, this was the largest study of transgender children conducted to date. And, um, you know, different people use these terms differently. So I want to specify what we mean by transgender children in this study. Um, so the kids in our study, the first time they participated in our research, they were between three and 12 years of age, and they had already socially transitioned. And what we mean by this is that they um, had changed the pronouns that uh, they use, the, the, their gender pronouns, um, to a binary gender pronoun that wasn't the one they were using at birth. So, for example, an assigned male using she, her pronouns. Um, and often these social transitions are accompanied by other changes like changes to appearance, um, sometimes changes to name. But basically, these are kids who, by the time they participate in our study, have already started to live and present as a gender that's different from uh, the gender that aligns with the sex they were assigned at birth. Um, and we, uh, what we did is we recruited these kids uh, across, from across the country and even some uh, kids from Canada, and we visited them in person. And we um, gave them measures of gender development that are very classic and have been used in uh, studies of gender development over the last several decades with cisgender kids. So um, I say that because previous research on gender um, 
has been done on quote unquote children with the assumption being that kids in general are cisgender. And so this is the first study to specifically um, assess and investigate gender development in transgender children. Uh, and what we found using these very classic measures of gender development, like gender identity measures and measures about um, gender stereotypical preferences like toys, clothing, and so on, is that these transgender children, regardless of how long they've been transgender, uh, show identification and preferences that are uh, strongly related to their current gender as opposed to the gender they were assumed at birth. And the extent to which or the magnitude of their preferences that correspond to their current gender um, does not differ from uh, those of cisgender peers of the same gender. You mentioned some things in there. One of the things you said is you, you went to homes and you were and you, and you visited children. And so these children have all socially transitioned. But there are also numbers of children who are transgender who don't have who don't live in homes that are supportive. So how do you how do you counter that? And, you know, how do you think how do you work to figure out, you know, what's what's social, what's environmental, what's what's actually scientific there. So there's a whole bunch of there going into that. So how do you sort through that? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the biggest limitations of our study is, um, well, this is a limitation, but also it, it, it's sort of an inevitable result of the purpose of the study, which was to assess gender development in transgender children who had already socially transitioned. Now in childhood age, to be able to socially transition and going through the processes of like changing your pronouns, your appearance, the gender you want people to use when they refer to you and so on, um, you really need parental support and sort of guidance through this process. Uh, so because we were interested in studying gender development among socially transitioned kids, inevitably we had to go to families who were supportive of their kids' gender identity expression. Uh, with that being said, there is a, uh, there is some extent of variation in terms of how supportive, uh, the families are in our sample, but I would say that on average, we have a highly supportive um, sample, of course. Now, like you said, this is also the the biggest limitation of our study because uh, while we show that transgender kids who have socially transitioned show these strong gender identities and preferences that are virtually, you know, difficult to tell apart from, impossible to tell apart from cisgender children's identities, we don't know the extent to which these results would generalize to other populations of transgender kids. So kids who are growing up in less supportive environments or don't have the means and context to socially transition early on, or, you know, kids who even are growing up in uh, societies outside the U.S. So this is a very um, specific study or our results are very much specific to our sample, but I, I see it as a, as a sort of like a foundational research study because we hardly knew anything about transgender children's gender development. And so I'm, one of the things that we're hoping is that this study would, will provide sort of a foundational resource for families or practitioners or 
um, researchers who are interested in gender development among transgender children to understand sort of like the baseline gender development, at least in this specific group of kids. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that makes sense. And I think that that limitation also becomes one of the big advantages of it, because you could actually show to a family who maybe is on the fence about being supportive and say, hey, this research says if you give your child the space to be themselves, there's actually a very net positive outcome for that child on the other side. So I think there's a way to spin that too. So, I mean, that's been probably not the right word, but I mean, your, your limitation is also one of the big benefits and the reason to do the study. Yeah, but I think you're right in that we do, we, in the long run, um, we would definitely want to be able to uh, access more kids who are either growing up in just different environments in general. Uh, there is a variation. We go to wildly different setups in the sense that we've been to very remote rural environments. We've been to very urban environments. So it's not like these families are living in very similar um, contexts necessarily. But our, our sample is generally high um, income, high education, tending on the liberal side. Now, of course, we don't know if they were always liberal or if they became liberal, more liberal once their child um, came out as transgender. But it is important in the long run to have these comparison groups. And just this, this just goes to show how important it is for psychological research or research in general to have different types of different types of popu or sorry drawing their samples from different types of populations is very important because it tells us more about the human condition it tells us uh, it, it allows us to generate knowledge that's more representative of a larger group of people so that's definitely going to be important I, sh I should also say you know this this is a, a sort of a, one of the first steps of a long-term project um, so we are planning this study as longitudinal, meaning that we are in touch with the same families and we've actually already seen some of our families three or four times. So we are in the process of putting together papers that look at the longitudinal outcomes of these kids as well. So questions like, are their gender identities and, and uh, related measures staying stable? Um, how do they compare in the long run to cisgender groups? Are there impacts on mental health? Are mental health variables different from cisgender groups again? So I think these longitudinal studies can also show us something about the, the impact of a supportive environment in the long run. So the group of children, as I recall, uh, they were ages three through 12 is the, uh, yeah. is, is the group. Uh, is there going to be like a, 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 a set period of time or is it just going to be like an ongoing thing, uh, like occasional check-ins and things like that? Um, so the first time they participate, they're between ages three and 12. Uh, but then we try to visit each family between one and three years after the first time we've seen them. The reason it's not very uh, consistent is because, you know, it's a very, it's, it, it's because it's a national study um, and we're just one team. We kind of, and we travel to wherever the families are. So it's dependent on things like funding situation, uh, planning in the lab, whether the families are available when we're going to plan our trip to their location and so on. So we try to see families between one and three years after the first time we've seen them. And the goal is to follow them 
well into their 20s as long as first the families are willing to participate and then the, the children also continue to be willing to participate. You, and of course, as long as we have funding. <laughs> yes, that's always the important thing. Do you think that there's going to be any sort of uh, be be able to do any sort of measures of societal pushback on their on their transitions during all this. Do you do you anticipate anything like that? I mean, that would be great. Uh, we've kind of tried to do that indirectly. I don't know if you would necessarily call this society societal pushback, but one we do, you know, record uh, demographic characteristics. So we have data on where these kids are living. And one of the things that we did look at in this paper, for example, is whether geographic location had any effect or predicted any differences in terms of gender, the magnitude of identification with their current gender and so on. And we actually found that there was nothing, uh, no, no correlations with geographic location. Oh, wow. But yeah, yeah, that, that was really interesting. So there is a caveat in that the geographic locations are defined pretty broadly um, because we're, we're saying this is the largest study of transgender children ever, but it's um, a little over 300 kids. And so when you think of uh, the U.S. map, 300 kids distributed across the, the whole geographic region, it, it ends up, you have to do so, certain clumps and we tried to do them mindfully. But what ends up happening is it's harder to get a distinction of like rural versus urban areas, which might differ on certain variables like support for LGBTQ rights and so on. And so a more detailed um, analysis of that where maybe we might be able to get voting records or public policies in their region and try to look at those, but we haven't yet been able to do that. What got you interested in this question about transgender socialization in the first place? One of my um, focus areas as a grad student in uh, University of Michigan was understanding how children reason about their social world. So broadly speaking, I'm interested in how kids think about social categories. And gender has been my um, main focus from the beginning, just because I, I find gender to be fascinating. It's such a sort of fundamental and primary category that we use to define people and think of people and kids do it from a very young age. And we know that gender is a category that's found uh, cross-culturally and found to be important cross-culturally. And, uh, you know, I'm also from Turkey and the gender roles are very well defined there. And just, I've always been very interested in how children and adults reason about gender and how they use gender to make inferences about people in various situations. And then while I was in grad school, I started reading more and more about children who are gender nonconforming or coming out as transgender. Uh, I, I remember, I think this was back in 2000 and... I actually don't. Maybe 2012. Throw out a number. We're not going to fight you on it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the New Yorker had um, like a profile piece called About a Boy, I think was the title. And it was about transgender children. And it was just very new at the time. And I, of course, I knew of transgender people, but I had never even thought of children as being transgender 
And it was just so fascinating. And I really wanted to know how these kids thought about gender and whether it was different from how uh, cisgender kids think about gender and whether, you know, to be honest, I, <laughs> I wondered if there was something kind of revolutionary there where these, we might learn from these kids about how we can think about gender in a different way and whether that might lead us down a path of using, how do I, sorry, I'm having trouble wording this. That's all right. Take your time. Um, At the time, I'll be perfectly honest, um, and hopefully I won't offend anyone, but at the time, it was so new to me that I, I, I had multiple questions, and, and I could see it going multiple ways, where one question was, I was wondering if these kids were so strict about the way they thought about gender that um, when they had, you know, the slightest gender nonconformity, did they feel like they had to be you know, the other binary gender, so to speak, or were the gender non-conforming kids more flexible in the way they think about gender or were cisgender kids more strict about the way they think about gender. And they think that they have to stick with the gender that society tells them, whereas these trans kids are maybe more flexible. So I was just thinking that there's so much possibility here that no one's really looked at. And it just, I don't, it was just fascinating to me. But at the time, I was trying to figure out my dissertation and um, my dissertation advisor and I, you know, I was from a very quantitative uh, research program and we decided that I would not be able to access enough kids to have um, a, a sound research design. And so we kind of put that on, you know, the back burner and it was something that I kept thinking about and then a few years down the line, I, I found out that Christina Olson, um, the principal investigator at University of Washington, was doing this project of recruiting transgender kids. And when I heard about it, she had only recruited about, I think, 35 kids or something like that. And she was looking for a postdoc. And it just like all... It all came just came together. together for you, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. We found out, I, I believe, about about a boy in The New Yorker was published March 18th, 2013, by the way. Okay, I was close. <laughs> yeah, you were very, very close. And and I'll make sure I get a link to it in our show notes, so that way, you know, somebody, if anybody's listening, they want to go back and read it, we'll have it available for them too. And you, you, okay. you know, you mentioned something in there about people's view. You know, if they're one, maybe perceived gender, and then if they have something going on with them, and maybe they go to the other. I mean you could fill volumes on it. I mean, I had a two hour conversation last month with a friend who is truly transgender, but yet because just the way her life is and the way she is happy as herself, she's assigned male at birth, but she will never start hormones. And, but yet the amount of <laughs> hate, and I mean, literal hate that she gets, especially from people in the transgender community who are on hormones, who mm, call her mm. a poser, a faker, whatever you want, whatever adjective you want to throw her way. But that's mm -hmm. there. There's there is a ton of research to be done here on this topic alone. So I I think you're starting to scratch the surface of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that actually is a very good anecdote to describe my interest in it and in that in general, um, I wouldn't say that my interest is, is is specifically within transgender kids' gender development, but just 
in general, why is gender so important to us that it creates these passionate arguments where a transgender individual who chooses not to have cross-gender hormones can be attacked by pretty much everyone on every side of the debate. And um, yeah, that's exactly why I'm so interested in gender. Why is it so important in our lives? So any big surprises from the uh, from this particular study? Also, I just want to point out that there were you've you've done been involved in a number of studies involving transgender uh, children, right? Because I as I as I was looking, I read the article in Newsweek, which is where I first saw your name and yeah. and wondered how and wondered how it was going to be pronounced. And then I was like searching. <laughs> I searched your name and transgender and a whole bunch of things popped up. So you're, this is like, a, like, like the third or fourth thing that you've done on uh, studies on transgender. Yeah. Or yeah. Penny here gave me like this long reading list. You should have seen me Friday night. Just I'm, <laughs> I'm sure be out having fun and I'm reading research paper after research paper. <laughs> I oh, read no, them I'm well sorry. before that. <laughs> I read them well before that. Some it's of us the do like, the assignments to Amy. Is, yeah, but that's pretty typical of me. Yeah, yeah. This is probably the most we read for an interview. So congratulations. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, it's pretty typical of me to suck up to a professor as well. So anyhow. <laughs> and we're just auditing this class. <laughs> So um, did I actually ask the question, what surprised you most about the findings? Because that was the question that I was going to get at for here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll still talk about this main paper that we're talking about. Yes, it's the, um, this, this particular paper, yes. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's most surprising is like our biggest finding, which is that we hardly found any differences between trans kids and cis kids. And the main reason, <laughs> the main reason that I find this surprising is when you think about how kids develop gender or acquire a gender identity, from the moment they're born, boys and girls are treated differently, even before actually, like with the gender reveal parties and, and the way families prepare nurseries and so on, the gifts that um, girls and boys get, their whole lives are just designed so differently um, for the most part. And with the trans kids, we're talking about kids who are very consistently treated by others around them as one gender uh, for several years before they transition. And, you know, again, these are kids in supportive environments. So once they transition, presumably most people in their environment start to treat them as the gender that they are. I would hope so. But, yeah. Um, but you are still talking about kids who for several years were in a different gender category and the strength of their identification and the, the magnitude of how quote unquote gender stereotypical their preferences are. Uh, and when I say gender stereotypical, what we're talking about here is, um, you know, stereotypes specific to our society uh, that are associated with each binary gender. Uh, so the, the, the fact that the, the magnitude is not different from kids who have been treated as one gender their whole lives is just remarkable to me. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting is that, uh, and it's related, is that regardless of how long these trans kids have been transgender, we find no differences. So um, th what this means is that on average, um, a, a, a kid who transitioned like five years ago 
and a kid who transitioned less than a year ago are showing no difference in the magnitude of their identification. Yeah. Um, I'll say one, sorry. Go ahead. No, please. I'll say one more thing that I think is really cool. And this was actually not something that we looked at necessarily, but it was kind of just more of a um, post hoc finding in that, um, you know, we, we all know of tomboys and, um, we, there are different estimates, but people, these estimates range all the way up to saying like, uh, half of all women identify as a tomboy at some point in their lives. And one of the coolest findings I think in our study is that, um, we're not finding that the trans kids or the cis kids are super stereotypical, uh, sorry, not all of the trans or cis kids are super stereotypical of their current gender. So what that means is that in both our transgender and our cisgender sample, we're finding kids who are quote unquote gender nonconforming, or we're finding kids who, um, we're finding kids who are, uh, showing very strong identification with their current gender, maybe, but, uh, less stereotypical preferences. So we roughly have the same number of tomboys in our transgender group as we do in our cisgender group. And I think that's just really fascinating. Yeah, so much so that you interrupted me asking a question about that to answer the question oh, that sorry. you didn't give me a chance to ask. No, that's absolutely fine. I should just be a little bit more patient here. And that's a lesson that sorry. I need to learn. So... <laughs> So where did, and I also, as, as I recall, I, I'm not sure that we, we, we broached this, but you only studied uh, children who declared themselves to be transgender. So other ones who are gender, ver- who are gender vari- variant, but did not classify, self-classify or self-identify as transgender were not included in this study, right? This particular study, yes, you're correct. Um, but we do, in our larger project, we do collect data from kids who have not socially transitioned, but might be identified as gender variant, gender diverse. And um, we are in the process of working on separate papers with those kids. What's the larger project? Oh, the larger project, um, we call it the Trans Youth Project. So we've had um, a few papers come out of that project already, but our papers so far have um, mostly focused on kids who have already socially transitioned because surprisingly we've had better luck um, recruiting those kids. Our recruitment of kids who have not transitioned um, has been a little slower, um, but we also have a group of kids who have not socially transitioned at least the first time they participate in our study. And we, um, we have one paper that we published about them uh, that actually came out in 2019 as well. Uh, but other than that, we're working on um, future studies. But I should also say the kids in our study um, uh, were identified as being transgender because they're using a binary pronoun that's different from what they were assigned at birth. And it's also different, like they're not using they pronouns, for example. Um, they're using he or she. Uh, but when we ask these kids what their gender identity is, not all our participants chose a binary gender. Um, but again, another surprising and cool finding is that the, the number of, uh, transgender kids in our transgender group who said they were neither a boy nor a girl or both a boy and a girl, um, 
was roughly equivalent, statistically equivalent to the cisgender kids who said that. That's amazing. So as, as we sit here and we've, you know, we've been talking now for, you know, going on a half hour, but what, what would you say to a parent who's just, their child has come to them and said, Hey mommy, Hey daddy, I was, I was born a boy, but I want to rip this penis off and I want to be a girl. Where would you start with that conversation? Um, well, the thing is, I'm, I'm not a clinician. I'm, I'm That's not, fair. yeah, I, I'm unfortunately in not, not in a place, uh, or I don't have the expertise to make any suggestions or recommendations on how, um, parents should approach that sort of situation. What I can do is I'll just explain the findings that we have, um, so yeah, I, I unfortunately I can't make any Don't worry, we suggestions can edit that about. Out. <laughs> okay, I can't make any. <laughs> yeah, I, I just can't make any suggestions about. Yeah, you're you're feel feel free to keep this in in the radio show or edit it out. It's yeah. completely up to you. But okay, I'm but not it... in a position of making suggestions about whether they should support their child through a transition. I, I would probably say. Of course, I would want any parent to be supportive of their child no matter what, but it, it is going to be up to the parent and the child to decide what that support will look like. Yeah, well, it sounds like you're saying to me, though, and I think this is probably where I was getting to or trying to lead to with this question, is more of it's not the scary end result that probably a lot of parents would imagine for their child. Like, you know, being transgender is the worst thing possible out there. You know, so that's, that's what the viewpoint is of a lot of cisgender people towards us. So I don't think it's all doom and gloom is is probably where you would head with this, I would think. Well, we do have one study. Um, I actually wasn't a part of that paper, but a study that came out of our lab um, showing that transgender and cisgender kids, again, between ages three and 12, don't show any major differences in terms of um, symptoms of anxiety and depression. Um, but the caveat there is that these kids are prepubescent and a lot of um, mental health issues do come up uh, with kids during adolescence and, and as a result of puberty. So we will have to follow up on these studies. And, and we do have people in the labs working on those. Like I said, my background is not in clinical psychology. So it's not um, one of the studies that I've been on. Uh, but studies are soon to come out to, to speak more to that as to what happens as these trans kids are growing older. Um, in terms of their mental health and, and social adjustment. Yeah. Now, here's a question that I that I've been thinking about for a while. And first off, it's I, I really am glad that you are studying trans children who are three years old. Uh, that 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 that's you know that that shows a level of of acceptance of the of the of the lived existence that is that is I think is heartwarming. And you mentioned that these were classics. What what sort of classic questions do you ask a three year old to to get an idea of their gender, uh, their 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 issues with gender and their beliefs about themselves? When a study is about transgender children's identity, um, some people have the reaction of, "Oh, how can a three year old or a four year old know that they're transgender or know their gender even?" But actually, decades of research that's been conducted with um, primarily cisgender children shows us that uh, starting at ages two or three, 
children do consistently categorize themselves and others um, by gender. And they're very good at using gender to group people and make inferences about people based on their gender in terms of things like what what sorts of toys they might want to play with. Um, Including and so their on. own penis in a lot of times, because I've had I have four kids, three boys, and there is a point <laughs> when they recognize their boys and uh, they they will do things that is uh, quite frankly disturbing to themselves. But uh, so I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that just is, yeah, they, I, I recognize that when you said that three-year-olds, yeah, of course they do. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so the types of measures we use, um, we're, we're trying to get at their gender identity and what we typically see, the, t the types of behaviors and preferences we typically see in kids of that gender identity um, and the way we do this is we use identity measures. So we ask kids, are you a boy, girl? And that's typically the options that are given in um, most gender development studies. But we also give them a third option of saying something else. Um, and, uh, you know, recognizing that some kids might not identify within the binary. And we do have a number of kids who go with the something else option. And, um, if they say something else, they are given further options of saying both uh, girl and boy, neither boy nor girl, uh, it changes or I don't know. And um, in addition to that, we have uh, what's called an implicit gender identity measure. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of the implicit association test at all. Uh, I'm, I'm, let's pretend we didn't, we don't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> We're both very, very uh, smart. We all, we, we actually do, but our, our, our listeners may not. So for their sake, not ours. Their sake, definitely <laughs> yeah. for theirs. Um, well, the implicit association test, there's many variations of it, but the, the variation we use is a gender identity implicit association test that's specifically designed to be used with young children. And what it does is, um, we ask kids to make very fast pairings um, and we tell them you have to go as fast as you can. And what they're doing is they're seeing pictures of girls and boys and they're seeing words related to themselves, like me, my, myself, or words that are related to other people, like they, them, theirs. And so we can't do this with the youngest kids because we need them to be able to read. Um, but we do it starting, um, we use it with kids starting around age six. And what they're asked to do is to quickly make categorizations where they're the, 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 they either have to pair uh, words that are related to them with the category girl on one trial and then on the other trial it switches. So they have to pair um, the me with the category boy. And so depending on the child's identity, the idea is that it's going to be harder to pair yourself with a gender category that you don't identify with. So we should expect that you're going to be slower on those trials and make more mistakes on those trials, especially because we've asked you to go as fast as you can. Um, the idea behind this is that, um, you know, if, if someone argues that on the question of just asking a child, are you a boy or a girl, a child could say whatever they think we want to hear. Um, but with the implicit association test or the implicit gender identity measure, the idea is that because we ask them to do it so fast, 
that um, it should be tapping into a more unconscious uh, understanding of their gender identity is something that they cannot manipulate. And um, even in this measure, we found uh, that transgender kids are implicitly associating themselves with their current gender rather than the gender that's associated with their sex assigned at birth. We also have a perceived similarity test. We ask kids uh, on a number of different types of behaviors. Do you, how, how similar do you think you are to boys and how similar you, do you think you are to girls? So regardless of the child's gender identity, we ask them to compare themselves to boys and girls. Um, and then we also have preference measures, like I said. So um, we know from, again, years of research in gender development that at, at those ages, between three and 12, kids have very strict stereotypical preferences. So kid, girls, for example, go through this very strict phase that researchers call very technically and formally the pink frilly dress phase. <laughs> um, and boys go through something similar as well, where, you know, I'm sure everyone knows a girl that just went through a frozen phase where they just would not take off the Elsa costume or they just wanted to wear the pinkest, frilliest, Pepto-Bismol uh, dress that you could find. And so the, the preference measures are tapping into those to see if kids are showing these preferences that we typically see in kids at those ages. But there's a lot, but with those preferences, though, are those societal or are those just inside of the children? So where, where do those preferences come from? I mean, can you, can you, can you get that level of distinction? Yeah, I, I, we can't. Um, <laughs> I think that's, that's a question that probably gendered researchers want to answer, but it's just one of those questions that I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully answer. Does that go down the hall uh, to the sociology department? No, I think it's just more that it's really hard to separate the influence of societal um, norms from what comes from within a child or, or an individual. But perhaps with longitudinal studies, we might be able to get at that more. But, you know, so I'm kind of bringing this back full circle and I, you know, maybe you can address this, but you, you said, you know, you're looking at this study from a transgender and cisgender perspective, but yet okay. that's a very binary choice in some regards mm -hmm. because it, because I identify as a binary transgender woman, or I mm -hmm. usually say I'm a woman who happens to be transgender, but you know, but you're finding in there, even within this binary choice of trans and cis there is this huge, there's this huge spectrum of gender. So any surprising <laughs> results there that you can, you know, share with us in our podcast tonight? Well, yes, in regards to this, and also going back to this question of, is it society or socialization? Or is it something that about these kids own preferences? I think what our results show us that there has to be something about socialization, right? These transgender children are definitely very aware of the stereotypes that are associated with their current gender. And they are just as stereotypical as the cisgender kids. They are showing the same level of stereotypical preferences in things like toys and clothing. Um, but they're doing this despite the early socialization they received directly uh, from their parents about their own gender uh, that they were assigned to at birth. 
And so what to me this shows is perhaps the early direct socialization that the parents are giving has less of an influence than what the child uh, feels their gender identity is internally. And what I think might be happening is that once children um, figure out what their gender identity is, they look out to the social world around them to see. So if I feel like I'm a girl, I'm going to look out into the world and look at how girls tend to behave or what they tend to like, what they play with, who they're friends with, and so on. So I think what's remarkable here is that trans kids seem to be developing these awarenesses and, and attaching to those role gender roles um, despite the socialization they directly receive at birth and, and soon after. And that, that leads to a whole bunch of questions because, you know, I'm 47 years old. And, you know, when I came out to my mom, one of the things that we talked about was, you know, you used to do all these girly things at a very young age, but yet it seemed like yeah. that was a phase and you moved out of it. But yet from a socialization standpoint, you know, four or five years old, I start playing hockey, you start going to school, you start doing all these things. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we were, you know, and there's plenty of people that, kids and people my age that maybe did cross gender things in the seventies that didn't grow mm -hmm. up to be transgender. So, you know, definitely. Oh yeah. It's, it's that, that, like the, the tomboy thing that you talked about earlier. It's like, definitely. Uh, yeah. You see a lot of Twitter things like, you know, I, I was a tomboy when I was a, when I was a girl. Now that I'm a woman, people want to have given, forced me to have a sex change operation and things like that. That's a, that's a societal issue. Not really a, 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 a kid's issue. Right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll put it out there. I was a tomboy myself, so and I'm not transgender right now. And um, our data definitely show that there are being a tomboy doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be transgender or it, we also don't find that being transgender means you're going to have these hyper extreme binary stereotypical preferences or identification either. Uh, like you said, and like I was saying earlier, we find variation between both our trans and cis groups in terms of how stereotypical their preferences are or how extreme their or how strong their gender identity is. And the shape of that variation or the extent to which we find that variation across the two groups is equivalent to each other. Well, and I would say with that, you know, I have transgender friends that do things still that they, you know, that they did when before they transitioned. And, yeah. you know, you know, like I have a friend that did some race car driving and now that she's transitioned, she continues in the race car and to drive race mm -hmm. cars because that's what she likes. But yet yeah. that's still very typical hyper masculine environment. And so I, I think that's one of the things. A lot of these things we've assigned genders to really don't need to have a gender assigned to them. Well, you were a volunteer firefighter, Amy. So Well, yeah, technically still. <laughs> that's another conversation. Uh, it's a good conversation, too. But yeah, so what, the overarching question about that. So why do we appear to be drawn towards these different interests and different things on a gender based uh, system? Is it something that's societal or is it biological? Where, what as a as a clinician, what do you what do you suppose or what have you found? Well, there are different theories out there. Um, there are certain researchers who believe that things like 
um, preferences and toys. So girls preferring to play with dolls and boys preferring to play with um, more mechanical toys like trucks, for example, is something that's innate. And then there's the other extreme of researchers who believe that it's just all socialization. There's nothing biological. There's nothing that's inborn, but everything is strictly socialized. I think that it's likely some combination of effects. I don't think that the bio what we think of as a biological difference necessarily falls on this binary divide of being female or male because we know that that's not a true binary divide actually and so I, what i don't think tell, don't tell my uncle that <laughs> what i think is likely happening is that there probably is some sort of biological Thing that we haven't yet quite understood. Maybe it's a combination of biological factors that determine where you fall on the spectrum in terms of perhaps we'll call it femininity and masculinity. But I don't think that the two necessarily have to be binary and opposing poles. I, I don't think that there's a, a binary divide. And I think um, what I was mentioning earlier that when we ask these kids, are you boy, girl, or something else, the fact that within both our trans and cis samples, we have kids who are saying that there's something else and choosing one of the other options shows that um, if we didn't, as researchers or parents or practitioners or society, impose these categories onto kids, if we just recruited them and looked at the whole sample, perhaps we would find different groupings or maybe they wouldn't be very strict binary categories. They would be, or discrete categories, but maybe more fluid and, and maybe kids would fall more on a spectrum. And I think these are things that researchers will have to work on. I agree with that. And, you know, the whole thing about playing with dolls, uh, that's, I, I was thinking about, uh, when I was a kid, they the, they started boys started playing with dolls too. So they called them GI Joes. Yeah, uh, and you know <laughs> action figures. Actual well, guys. The, yeah. the, my 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 kids always called them guys. But I had a GI Joe, and what I did when I was six and seven years old is I would steal Barb Schwartz's Barbie clothes and try and put them on my GI Joe, which should have been a no a, big a, sign, big a big sign, sign that uh, <laughs> that there was something going on with me back then. Yeah, and I, but I also think with that, you know, like you said, uh, you, you know, but those are easy to miss the signs, you know, and when we're growing up, you know, you in the 60s, me in the 70s and 80s, but... Rub I, that in a little more, please, I, Amy. Yeah, I know, I thought, but, you know, it's just, we didn't have the words back then, and everything was very black and white, and was so much binary, but, you know, and I think what you're alluding to here is, Celine, is that we're going to get to a point where I think we're going to realize that gender really is a spectrum and you could maybe identify as a boy like I did, you know, growing up and I knew I was a little bit different, but I didn't really think much about it. But now all of a sudden I'm 45 years old, a couple, you know, three, four years ago. And I'm like, holy shit, if I don't do something about this, it's going to literally kill me. And then I make my transition. So this is going to ebb and flow through people's lives too. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think, you know, we need, I think we do sometimes some disservice to people, you know, Gen X and baby boomers who are transitioning because, you know, a lot of the focus goes rightfully to the child and early development. And I really agree with that. But at the same time, you know, 
there's a body of work out there that says gender is fluid. It is going to change. It is going to evolve and it can do it within a lifetime, a person's lifetime. It could be, you know, maybe one day, you know, I want to look like a guy, put on my suit and go to work next day. Why, why can't I wear a dress and go to work? You know, but our society isn't there yet either. Yeah, definitely. And I also was going to mention earlier, um, when, uh, you were talking about how early on you were showing more feminine, um, behaviors and your mom noticed that later they kind of went away and you went up to hockey practice and so on. And actually we find that in gender development research as well, that, you know, kids go through these phases of, you know, once they get out of the pink frilly dress phase, we do see a phase of more, um, relaxed gender roles and experimenting with being more okay with, uh, crossing the gender boundaries and, there are presumably levels or degrees to which that happens. And And that's probably why I did a lot of the stuff in secret too, you know, because there was, I did go in and out of these phases. So sometimes I'd be super masculine and then other times I'd have time to myself as a child and I could be more feminine in the discreetness of, well, never mind. Yeah. When mom and dad were gone. When mom and dad were gone. Yeah, let's just leave it at that and we'll move on from there. Go back to episode one. <laughs> yeah, and two for me. So that's, yeah, that's it. So, uh, Celine, it's been really, really great chatting with you. We've taken up an awful lot of your time here. I want to uh, add... Maybe. What? You got something, Amy? No, uh, I, that wasn't me. Oh, that, oh that, I'm sorry. So I just want to end on one quick thing. I want to have a competition between Amy and I to see who can pronounce your name better. <laughs> Okay, I'm I'm gonna go first. Let me see if I can get this right. Here we go. And you don't don't say anything until we're done, and then you tell us the way you pronounce your name. We have problems with names in this video. We had a friend whose uh, whose whose name is Rick Starpoli, but there's an O in it, so we were calling him Staropoli, and that was found out that it was wrong. And then there was Woody Battaglia, which we said Woody Battaglia. So this is a running and on on ongoing thing with us. So here's my try okay. at saying your name. <clears throat> okay. Selene Gugos. And now here's Amy's turn. Selene Gugolas. And you say it is? <laughs> it's, um, do I choose a winner? No, or yeah, choose, a winner, winner choose a winner. Choose the winner. Okay. Amy, I know you want to win, but I think Penny gets the point. <laughs> okay, so now, now tell it's us. It's supposed the... to be about me. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious. So, yeah, so uh, yeah, I want to hear your name. I want to hear you say your name just so I can get it and I'll practice it. So the next time we talk, I'll be able to say it with fluency. <laughs> okay. Um, my name is Céline Gulgos. One more time. Céline Gulgos. Céline Gulgos. I will. Yeah, try. that's perfect. There we go. I am perfect, Amy. That's what I've been trying <laughs> to say for some time. Oh, my Lord. Céline Gulgos, thank you so much for being on Transformation Thursday with us. I really appreciate it. And then uh, I'm going to start following you. And the, the next time you do something that's really interesting in the transgender field, I'll probably be getting in touch with you again. Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you. All right. And we'll be back with, more, with a final wrap up with Transgender Thursday, Transformation Thursday in just a few minutes. You can say your name right, but not the name of our show. I know I'm shameful. 
To financially support Transformation Thursday, go to transformationthursday.com and that will bring you to our Patreon page. Once there, click on the Become a Patron button. You can also follow us online on Facebook. You can follow us by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. And please join our private Facebook group by searching Transformation Thursday on Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us at TransThursPod. To make sure you stay up to date with all the latest episodes, please subscribe to the Transformation Thursday Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts on apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star rating and a short review it's free and it does help get transformation thursday out to a larger audience finally transformation thursday is copyrighted material all rights reserved 2020 Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. I'm Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her. And I'm Penny Sterling, and my pronouns are she, her as well. That was such a fascinating conversation with a brilliant woman who's spending some time actually doing something that I'm, that I'm very, very uh, passionate about, and that is uh, support of trans children. And she's doing it from a scientific uh, viewpoint. And so I was wondering what your takeaway was from our conversation, Amy. My big takeaway, and I, I hit on this a couple times within the interview, was, you know, there's we want to look at things in such a binary choices here in our society. And when it comes to gender, you know, it's male, female. And now we're starting to dial down a little bit more to trans and cis. But yet there's still this huge spectrum. And even if we try to categorize people within the transgender community, there's so many levels, different levels of expression within our transgender community and you know a lot of people you know and i use the story of my friend who does not want to start hormones but knows that she's a girl even though she was assigned male at birth and how much hate she takes from our inside of our own community and i would like us to get away from those labels and just be able to accept people for who they are yeah i think that uh, the best use of being trans is that that the ability to defy, defy categorization. I think that's very important for us. And I, 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 if, if I was to spin this forward to uh, the best possible scenario for the next 15 to 20 years is that the idea of transgender just disappears because that whole, and, the, and also the, the, the male and female binary disappears and just people are just people along a spectrum and nobody gives a shit about where they are. They just figure it out themselves. And, you know, if you're not, if you're not dating somebody and being intimate with somebody, it really doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. And I, and I mentioned this as well. Why does it matter from like, let's just say a dress code perspective. If one day I wear to work, you know, a dress and a cute top, you know, and then the next day I come in in a, in a traditional male business suit. What, what, why should there be any why? Yeah, and I think it's really great that uh, Professor Gulgos, because I say it better, uh, Professor Gulgos is actually like asking that question: Why is the is the issue of gender such a, a hot button topic for so many people? And I'm wondering if hopefully we'll get to the bottom of that. But I'm just grateful. I think it's biblical. Uh, amen to that. I think it's just. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would like, I think we, I think we're onto something there. I mean, if you look back at the last few millennia, I mean, a lot of this drives back to, you know, biblical times, traditional roles within society. And so, you know, how do we break free of those in this modern era? That's, 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 that's what we're pushing towards. Yeah, that, that's an important thing. I'm just grateful that there are people like Dr. Gulos that are doing this work and giving us some background so that it's not just anecdotal, there's actually scientific 
uh, research being done to do this. But that's all the time we're going to have uh, for this uh, particular edition of Transformation Thursday. Uh, please support us on Patreon if you can. Any amount will be uh, be accepted. And uh, where can they uh, get to that Patreon page, Amy? It's very easy to do. You just have to type into your browser of choice. Which www. I, yep. And I prefer Chrome, so it's www.transformationthursday.com. Yeah, and I prefer Latvian, which is also www.transformationthursday.com. Latvian's I don't, a... Uh, I don't know. I just, oh, I just threw that out that's there. That's a browser? No, it's a person. It's, it's a person. It's a group of people. It's a person's. Latvians? Yes, Latvians. And hey, I have an online friend who's transgender from Latvia. Wow. It's tough to be transgender there. Well, you need to ask her to, to, to give us a translation of Transformation Thursday in Latvian now so that we can speak to that. Or at I least I can, because apparently you don't have a facility for language. No, I don't. Not like you do. <laughs> All right. I have a very facile tongue. Amy, thank you very much for being my friend and being here on the show. It's been oh, a lot of Oh, you're welcome. You're, you're behind on your payments, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll send you a check. But anyhow, good night, Amy. Good night, Benny. Good night, everybody. Céline Gulgos.